Hi, I'm Kahi Shah, and you're listening to The Baking Soda Podcast, featuring startup companies on the rise. Hi, I'm Arif Damji. We believe that successful startups share the same properties as this magical white powder, namely being essential, versatile, and adaptable. Together and with all of you, we will delve further into the journey of early stage companies and their adventurous CEOs. One fun use case of baking soda is actually in a spray to help freshen your dog's breath. It works magic on our little doodle, and I highly recommend it. Today's startup in the spotlight is Truim. They were one of many, well actually 50, YC companies working on changing the world with generative AI. Truwind is focused on accounting tech with its AI-powered bookkeeping and financial modeling SaaS solution aimed at startups. They have an impressive number of customers following some very, very strong press coverage. And it seems like growth isn't slowing down Welcome, Alex Lee, founder and CEO of Truin. Thank you for being with us today. Rikuhimi, thanks for having me. This is going to be a lot of fun. I was a little bit sad to learn I'm number two on the docket, not number one, but it's okay. Forgive you. They saved the best for number two. Just remember that. We're going to start coining that, aren't we? <laughs> yeah, it's kind of the tagline right there. It's always worth starting with the human story behind the company. I'm curious, Alex. How did you get to this stage in your entrepreneurial journey? How did you meet your co-founder, Tennyson? Yeah, this one's a bit of a rocky story, not with Tennyson, but I guess my, my founder story in general. This is my second startup. My first one is a company called Blue Light. We were backed by YC in a Winter 21 bash. So this is my second time through YC. And I went through that experience with uh, Stu and Dixon, two phenomenal, very brilliant uh, engineers and founders. But, you know, this journey is easy, right? And there came a part of the journey where we kind of saw two diverging opinions of where we wanted to, wanted to take the company. And if you can't rely on a vision in the early days, it's not a whole lot holding it together because that's what you're building towards, towards that five, seven, ten year journey. And so I left Blue Light last May. Stu and Dixon are still running the company. And with Tennyson, I like to say he found me. After going through a uh, founder separation, no matter how amicable make it, it's tough and you have your reservations. And I certainly did. But I also knew it was a smart business decision to have a co-founder. It's a long journey. You don't want to go out it alone. But I was only willing to dedicate 5% of my time to it. Tennyson, on the other hand, was willing to dedicate 100% of his time to finding a co-founder. And so we met through the Silicon Valley channels uh, using YC's co-founder matching platform. And we really hit it off early, but you know, these conversations early on, um, it's hardly an indicator of what the relationship will be long-term. The part where things really clicked for Tennyson and I, and this is something I would recommend to all founders. I invited him to spend the Christmas holidays with me and my family in Seattle. And this was huge. When you spend Every day, 24-7, under the same roof for 7, 10 days in a row, you really get to know someone. And so it was after that experience where I, I thought, there's no doubt Tennyson and I are going to work great together. And sure enough, going through YC, the pressure cooker it was and is, and now post-YC, we continue to build a business. It's been a phenomenal experience with them. So that's my co-founder story. Wow. Sounds like you put him through the family test. I'm not sure everyone would pass that test, and it probably is one of the best ways of, of finding someone compatible. 
with yourselves. It was actually a piece of advice I got from another YC founder. Okay, so tell us more about Truant. What is your mission? And how will you replace the, uh, let's say, deeply entrenched SMB practice of hiring a part-time or a full-time accountant to close the books? Mm-hmm. When I think about the space of accounting and bookkeeping, I mean, companies, startups have been trying to automate this task away for decades, I mean, ever since we invented JavaScript. And at a, at a glance, it kind of makes sense. Accounting is a set of rules that's automated with rules-based software. But it's not so simple as we found out. 20 years later, here we are still trying to figure it out. And that's because there is a degree of judgment that bookkeepers have to exercise to do their jobs. This is a task that software could not do. And now we finally have the technology to be able to do it. That doesn't mean we'll be able to entirely replace the bookkeeping task. Their, their responsibilities are fairly wide range. And so when I think about what is it that we're really building, we're building a co-pilot for bookkeepers, a co-pilot for financial analysts, an AI assistant that has helped software developers do their jobs 10x better. Well, let's adapt that for what bookkeepers and financial analysts need, unlock the 10x potential out of them, and for them to really focus on the critical reasoning areas of their job rather than the small little mundane judgment I think almost every white collar job might have an AI co-pilot. Um, you have a lot of exciting early traction at Truin. What are the common use cases that you're tackling at Truin and co-piloting? And what is on the horizon? Mm-hmm. The immediate use case our customers come to us for is their bookkeeping. This is both for a cash-based accounting as well as accrual-based accounting. If we were to break that down a little bit, on a cash-based accounting, we just need to see what goes in and out of your bank account. So that's the first use case. The second case is we get into accrual-based accounting. Now we need to look into your contracts, your invoices, your lease agreements, your sales agreements, all that information. We're able to get access to all that, run it through an OCR AI system, and be able to put your accrual accounting practice on autopilot as well. Those are the two use cases that our customers come to us for. That's what all of them use us for. But as we look ahead, the journey doesn't stop with just bookkeeping. We think about it from the lens of how are our customers growing and then how can we grow with them? Hence, I mean, that's the only way selling to startups, this business model really works. And so as our customers grow from C to Series A to Series B, their finance needs evolve as well from bookkeeping to reporting to financial planning. And then the whole slew of strategic finance needs later on. That's how we think about building things uh, as our customers grow. Those are the use cases on the horizon. I cannot wait for that future. Um, Talent is pouring into Gen AI. What do you see Truin's short-term competitive advantage as? And what will Truin's long-term moat be? Yeah, the question around competitive advantage and differentiation is it's in Gen AI something we talk about a lot, right? Within founder circles, investor circles, and everything in between. I think there's a, still a lot of unknowns here that we can't quite figure out. My view here, um, we're building on top of available foundation models. It doesn't make sense to me to go about it another way. This is the, when I think about it from a cost benefit analysis, right? This is the fastest way out to the market to extract the most value. 
Now, on top of the foundation model, we believe we can build a bit of a competitive advantage on our reinforcement learning. The difference between a 90% accuracy model and 95% is very noticeable to the customer. And I believe that customers are always willing to pay for a better user experience. And so there's a bit of an edge that we can get there, but that'll diminish in time. And we only get it by being here earlier and moving faster than others. Uh, but as more and more companies come into this space, as larger companies figure out how to go about it, uh, I think that edge will diminish a little bit. Otherwise, long-term, when I think about Moat, it really boils down to how creative we can be in thinking of new business models, thinking of new user experiences. And how is your tech stack architected? You mentioned you're using foundational models um, off the shelf, which makes makes a ton of sense. Curious if you have a favorite model and also curious if you have any favorite large language model tools um, when it comes to vector databases or anything else that goes into the stack. For sure. So on the LLM tools, Big shout out to our batchmates, Stack AI and Vellum. Uh, we were early customers in both of them for things were entirely built out and they've moved really fast. They built out a lot of great tooling to help us scale what we need to, what we want to be able to accomplish. So those are two of our favorite LLM tools. Um, also a big fan of Langchain as well. Uh, we're not using them at the moment, but certainly see a future where we will be. And in terms of the foundation model, I think everyone's kind of defaulted to OpenAI, um, which kind of makes sense in terms of the buzz, the publicity, you know, as far as go to market goes, they really, they really nailed it. And so we're currently using them as well, using GPT-3 plus the reinforcement learning. The reason why we're not using GPT-4 yet is because we can't do our own reinforcement learning on top of it. And the reinforcement layer is really important for us. With that said, I don't want people to sleep on Google Barrett either. You know, the, a lot of the fundamental research came out of them. And I think it'd be silly to assume that they're out of the game. So we keep a close eye. We experiment there as well and see, look, at the end of the day, if there's advantages to get from OpenAI as well as Google, we're going to, you know, we're not going to just be married to one. And what is your biggest concern or biggest concerns in using generative AI? How are you mitigating them? Right. Um, I think everyone can pretty quickly see the concern with generative AI and accounting is that you can't afford it to be wrong. Whereas with you know, many of the other applications in sales and marketing and customer success, it doesn't have to be 100% right and it's okay. But I don't have that luxury. And so with that, um, we're running a lot of experiments around reducing the temperature to zero or what does it mean to reduce the temperature to, neg to a negative number to really try to constrain how creative the model tries to get in their responses. There's a lot of prompt engineering you can do to try to constrain their responses to focus on one thing. And so those are all the various tools at our disposal to mitigate that concern. But the last and probably most important piece is as much as we attempt to, as much as we try to increase the accuracy of zero shot learning, at some point we're going to need a customer's input. So it's again, this all boils down to user experience. There's a lot of different ways to approach accounting GPT or finance GPT, and it could be very showy and very buzzy. But our mindset is, what is the customer's user experience? Where are their pain points? Let's go nail that part down. When I think about creating the right user experience, it's about creating a user experience where our customers are willingly training the model themselves. 
where they are more than happy to provide this input to us, us slash our model. And that's what ultimately makes things better. Alex, bookkeeping is fundamentally a cost center. Even worse, MPS scores can be rather dismal because accountants might make a mistake or they might just take too long to close the books. Why did you focus your company on a cost center instead of choosing an area where you could lift revenue? That's a multi-layered question and I'm going to bring about a new idea. But first of all, as much as accounting and bookkeeping is a cost center, it's also mandatory and required. So it's not like you can get out of it, right? So we have that piece coded for us. Um, but I think your question around why I chose to go after this space of all things, there's this bigger idea here. I've been a student of how markets work. I'm just generally fascinated about how markets work and what it has done for our economy, but beyond that, uh, human as a species and our society. I mean, you go back to the um, when the Netherlands were occupied and kind of lost their freedom. One way that they gained their freedom back again was through trade and through creating what we now know as the East India Trading Company. But what people forget is that was the first kind of publicly traded company because at the time you could purchase shares of one ship. But then the likelihood of that shift returning was like less than 50%. Well, they took the simple idea of diversifying risk. Now you can purchase equal, you know, 10% of 10 different ships. And that will kind of bring about uh, a more reasonable return for your investment. And from that simple idea was born everything that we see in the public markets. But then I look at all the wealth that is generated in the private markets. Take Uber, for example. Uber generated over $80 billion of value in the eight years it was private. But ever since it went public, it's lost over $40 billion of value, which means any retail investor who want to participate in that wealth creation never got to. It continues to focus the wealth creation on the haves, and it continues to divide the haves and have-nots. And so the interesting thing for me is, how do we create something akin to the public market infrastructure, but in private markets. We know the SEC doesn't have the resources to do so, but maybe technology can do something about that. Carta has really le led the charge here by building out equity infrastructure. But a big piece that's missing here is the finance infrastructure, the financial data infrastructure. So that's the, kind of the bigger picture to what I'm building here. As much as we're going after this accounting problem, the vision for this is to create a more equitable landscape for people to participate in these private markets. Fascinating. And bookkeeping is the the backbone, right? Of anything you build on top. So it makes sense as to why you start with that. You are two XYC founder. It's harder to get into YC than Harvard. Why did you decide to go through this process again? Any advice to our CEO listeners that will apply for a future batch? YC has been one of the best decisions I made for my first company as well as my second. The most powerful thing about YC is the community that it makes available to you. You're going to be surrounded by thousands of other very ambitious and very, very smart and talented people. It's a community where you may not know each other, but it serves as a bit of a warm intro. And so if I wanted to talk to uh, a YC founder from 10 batches ago, if I drop it in the subject line, still guarantee they'll reply, but I feel very confident that they'll at least read my message and if it fits know, they'll send me a note back and uh, we can have that conversation. And so um, from a network standpoint, it is tremendously valuable. The more, shall we say, like straightforward reason 
uh, that a lot of people think about is, you know, they are also a very clear set of customers that I can sell to. Given that I'm developing bookkeeping software and I'm targeting venture-backed startups, every single startup needs it. And so not only am I looking to sell to my batchmates, but also to companies from previous batches. Alex, TrueWin's traction so far is very impressive. But I'm curious, what is the future go-to-market to reach that uh, the rest of the ever-growing startup ecosystem? As we know, baking soda has broad distribution and awareness has never been an issue. Right from day one, right? How oh, awesome. When I think about uh, B2B, as a B2B SaaS company, when it comes to go-to-market, there's a pretty clear, shall we say, playbook of options to pick from. And for us, we haven't done any outbound, direct to outbound sales. I know in our future at some point that we will. Um, the reason why we haven't is because our customers, our potential customers generally look to switch or generally open to switching their accounting provider in a fairly narrow window. It's usually right around the same time VCs want to talk to them before or after fundraising. And as much as part of our job is to know when they want to fundraise and reach out to them at the right time, it's also a lot easier if they just know your company, know your brand, and they'll come to you when they're ready to fundraise. And so we're very much in the same light. We want to uh, continue putting ourselves out there with helpful content, whether it's on the founder journey, whether it's uh, understanding the market or the customer, whatever it may be, continue being helpful to our customers through brand, through content marketing. And so when they're open to considering a new accounting provider, we're going to be top of mind. And so all of our customers have come inbound to us, um, every single one. And uh, the five sales calls that I took today continue to be that way. Now, I will say now that we're over 30 customers, uh, we're getting a lot more referrals as well. And so we're actually getting to the point where it makes sense to set up some sort of referral system to encourage our customers to be our champions and to spread the gospel even more. It's the beauty of the startup ecosystem is just the, the closeness, right? Everyone's sharing best practices with each other. And I think that's, you know, helpful in this situation for you guys. But whenever I think about a, a startup that effectively sells to other startups, my concern is churn risk, right? We, we know that 90% of startups won't make it. And for the 10% that do, there's often a risk of graduation. Right, that they their needs change, and even with new offerings, they just they will go a different path. Um, and so, how do you how do you manage churn mm -hmm. through every layer that is involved? What do I mean by that, the graduation risk we tackle head on. We're not going to settle for just accounting and bookkeeping as it is today. As I mentioned earlier, we think about growing with our customers. As our customers get larger, their finance needs changes or not changes; they evolve. They never stop needing bookkeeping, so that'll always be there. But then they'll need reporting, they'll need planning, they'll need taxes, they'll need treasury, they'll need all of the above. And so for us, it's really a race around building out that next product feature to make sure that our customers stick with us. The other piece around managing churn is not settling for just startups. We start here because we are able to move faster here. We want to take advantage of the opportunity being part of YC gives us selling to venture back companies but we've already started selling to very traditional smbs uh who are, are cash generated cash positive you know generating very healthy margins and the way i think about the way i think about the sales process is 
Accounting and finance is very delicate. It requires a little bit of social proof to sell to the next category of customers. Like, I, it's going to be very hard for me to knock on a door of Brex or DoorDash and ask them to hand over the keys to the kingdom. Uh, we started off with C-Stage companies. Then we sold to Series A. We got social proof. Then sold to Series B and then Series C customers. And that's how I think about moving up market to larger and larger customers who can pay higher ticket sizes. It's about getting social proof before moving up there. And so those are two ways to think about managing churn. We believe that startup companies should share the attributes of making startup, essential, versatile, and adaptable. Curious, one, if this resonates with you, and two, if you feel like True Wind is similar in any way to baking soda. I love it. <laughs> um, yes, absolutely, I do. And I think this is, when I think about the attributes you listed, it's part what our company is to the market, and the other part is our team. So when I think about essential, bookkeeping is essential, good finances are essential, in various degrees, right? Like for the C stage company, they just care about bookkeeping. But as you get to series B and C, good financial practices are very essential as well. When I think about adaptable, that's really, I think that's more of a function of the team of what we represent. We have a long-term 10, 15 year vision that we're building towards, but the path to getting there, it's not going to be linear. I know that as much as we want to believe it will be, it will. And we've already learned things from our customer that has shaped, you know, our product roadmap three to six months out. And so for us, that's how we think about being versatile. I love that analogy of a big <laughs> So keep evangelizing it. Perfect. Perfect. Um, well, thank you so much, Alex, for being with us today. This was so fun and our time has flown by so quickly. But before you leave, we have to ask, what is your personal favorite use of baking soda? Oh, that's easy. You know that volcano experiment we did in elementary school? Definitely that one. Baking soda plus vinegar. Love it. This is Kahini and Arif with the Baking Soda Podcast, featuring startup companies on the rise. Thank you to all of our listeners. And for those of you that haven't subscribed, we encourage you to do so and tune in for our next episode.